Well, good morning. Uh, it's summer. Can we just get a quick shout out for the fact that it is warm in the city, that all of you should walk somewhere today. I don't care where. Go to brunch. Go to a coffee shop. Go, give me some celebration for summer here. This is good. I'm glad to be here in summer with you. Uh, it's fun to be in summer, although I know as you look around the room, uh, say hello to everyone near you, and then also say, I probably will have at least one week I will be at a wedding in the next coming months, because that is probably what is going to happen. Uh, but it is good to be here together at the start of May. This is sort of our last window of time where I think everyone still kind of holding on to life uh, here on Sundays. And to close out uh, this journey we've been on this week, I wanted to land the plane, so to speak, with this conversation we've been having around why church? Why church? If you've been with us the last few weeks, I just wanted to give you a brief recap. We started two weeks ago uh, in the distant recesses of your memory, talking about the image of God as an answer, as a response to the question, why church? If you remember this journey we went on with the image of God, we talked about how bearing God's image has left uh, many of us realizing that we are like this stained glass. If you remember, I showed you the York Minster, which is over in York, England. And the thing with the York Minster was that it started to buckle. The glass kind of got bent and warped, needed to be restored. This is one of the responses to why church, because we need to be restored to the image of God that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, but from there, the image of God, we continued with the presence of God, talking about how God's presence was intended to dwell here with us, to be with us. And yet, I showed you this image really a sophisticated uh, design of my own making. You're welcome for my graphic design skills. And uh, what I was reflecting on in this was sort of the pressures of the secular age. We talked about how we live in a cultural moment that's really restricting God from our everyday life. We're doing the best that we can to live our lives apart from God. And yet, in response to why church, God created us, intended for us to be in God's presence, to dwell with God, to be in relationship with God. And so the church is the community right here in Lincoln Hall that is reminding you with signs, everything from worship to this table to the word of God that's being taught, that God's presence is here and wants to go with you out into your lives. Yeah, if you're tracking with this flow, that leaves us with this final question, why church. And I, I think why church needs to, at some point, push us to realize church is not just about something you're meant to come and receive here. Instead, church is something that is meant to push you out, that's meant to send you out. Now, if you can track with me for just a second, um, I don't have these on the slides here, but there's this really interesting, beautiful passage in the Gospel of John, a very striking passage in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is starting to appear after his crucifixion, and he's uh, arriving, really showing up, sort of unexpectedly, among the disciples. And there's one passage in particular, in John 21, where we're told on the first day of the week, which, if you pause and think about it, in Jewish time, uh, the seventh day of the week was the Sabbath, which would happen on Saturday. So the first day of the week was a Sunday. Uh, we're told that Jesus appeared among his disciples. He appears among them. So it's like the disciples gather, and Jesus appears among them, and then he says this to them. Peace I give you, but as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. It's right there at the very start of the church, this very first moment after Jesus' resurrection, that he appears among the gathered disciples. This is an image of what church is doing on a Sunday. Jesus doesn't let the disciples 
chill. He doesn't let them just remain with the peace of his presence. Instead, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Every Sunday, as we close this service, we actually intentionally pray over you and we send you out to the city. But the question that emerges for me, if that's true, I think most of you can get on board with this. The church is fundamentally sent. We are a sent community. Uh, the question really becomes, what are we sent to be doing in the city? What is our mission? Uh, what are we supposed to be up to uh, between Sunday afternoon and Saturday evening when we are no longer here together in the church? Now, this is one of the great tensions as I've talked to many uh, peers, millennials, Gen Z. This is sort of my crowd. Forgive me if you're not part of that group. That's okay. Uh, we're so glad some of you are here with us. Uh, you matter too. But I'm going to focus for just a minute on, I promise, I promise. Uh, I'm going to focus on these sort of ornery, difficult millennials and Gen Z, yeah? Because we're, we're the difficult ones right now. Uh, when I talk to my peers, one of the biggest challenges is that there's this huge burnout. Whether these friends are currently in the church or they are no longer in the church. There's this huge burnout because those who grew up, like I did, in a sort of evangelical tradition, were told over and over and over again that the church is on mission. We were told over and over and over again that we were sent out to the world, and then we were given all of these tools and strategies that were often called evangelism or apologetics. And yet, the challenge is, as I kind of reflect on my experience going through the youth group culture, uh, my parents worked with Campus Crusade for Christ, if any of you got involved with a parachurch ministry in college, is that there was almost this really intense pressure that the church was sent to sell the gospel to the world. Now, can you track with me here for just a minute, because I, I dangerously uh, might be stepping on a few toes. That's okay. Done that a few times this series. It's fun. We'll try to keep it light. Uh, but if I'm stepping on your toes, the, the challenge is there's actually a lot of interesting, thoughtful analysis, research on this, that the church in America uniquely, uniquely the evangelical church in America, got caught up in a lot of these very American things. In fact, so much so that it's sort of hard to always differentiate what's the Christian thing and what's the American thing. And some of it was capitalism and some of it was marketing and some of it was uh, really the Mad Men era of the 1950s and 60s. And yet as a result, and again, I'm, I'm sort of, I know I'm, I'm being a little edgy here. Uh, as a result, there is this pressure on many of us that the mission of God, the purpose of us, is actually to go out and convince people to become Christians, right? Does that resonate or ring true with any of you this morning. If that was your experience, again, for some of you that might not have been, but if that was your experience, uh, you start to look around and you feel at times that missions trips, uh, discipleship courses, evangelism groups, uh, you kind of look around and feel like you're a sales force. You're using sales techniques and strategies. In fact, there's almost a market of uh, multi-level marketing flow at times where you're like, wait, if I bring two people and then they bring two people <laughs> and we've all brought two people, uh, then what's going to happen? And so my, my question, my, my challenge for us, uh, is that first, I want to I be clear. Sales strategies are not inherently evil in and of themselves. Some of you here are in sales. It's great. You've used sales strategies and techniques. And if you're in sales, you know the best thing about sales is when you have a good sales pitch for a good product that people want to buy, right? It's so nice when people want 
what it is you're selling. I have found even uh, as much as I hate algorithms, social media algorithms, inevitably there's these moments where I'm scrolling on my phone, it's uh, Instagram, it's YouTube, and all of a sudden I get hit with this ad and I know they're listening to me, right? I know they've heard me talking about shoes or like a bike or whatever else it is, but I'll get hit with this ad and I go, man, I was looking for a new pair of shoes and that is a nice pair of shoes. I think I'm kind of glad that they are trying to sell that to me. I will go check out whatever it is that's being sold. There's not a problem if sales are being used, even with the gospel, if people want to receive that good news. The challenge has become that in the last 15 years, our culture has seismically shifted in every possible way. If you were with us last week, I threw a graph on the screen that shows how in the last 15 years, religious nuns are going up, people who say they have no association with religion. Uh, those who associate with Protestant Christianity are going down. People want less and less to do with religion. And uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article that's been bouncing around all of my pastoral feeds this last week. You can go check it out that says, interestingly, Gen Z wants more spirituality, but less of the church. Gen Z is saying, we're, hey, we're actually really interested in God. There's been this huge uptick on the other side of the pandemic uh, that Gen Z is searching, and yet uh, for a majority of Gen Z, they're saying, we don't really like God as God has traditionally been defined to us by the church. We're interested in finding something else. If this is true, here's what I want to land this for you as we enter into this conversation on the mission of God and why church. I think there's three categories that might even be here in this room right now that are definitely out as you're in your workplace, as you're talking to coworkers, as you even talk to friends who maybe were a part of the church and now no longer are. Here's the three categories I want to give you. The first, I have found consistently, are those who are discouraged. So there are those of us who grew up in the church who have tried to do this missions thing, have tried to share the good news with our friends, we've, we've maybe attempted some of these strategies and techniques, and what we're finding is that as we're going out to our friends, our coworkers, our peers, they are, it just doesn't feel like it's working anymore. It doesn't feel like they want to come to church. It doesn't feel like the gospel is this good news that they want to receive in their lives. And so, we're just discouraged. We're kind of like, man, what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian in the city? Like, Maybe I should just come and be here and like kind of take care of myself because I'm not really sure if it's going to work out there if I were to actually try this thing. If discouraged is the first category, the second is those who are disillusioned, right? And there's this kind of flow that I've seen among my peers, my friends, my siblings. It's like you begin kind of discouraged that this wasn't really working super well, and then something happens. Sometimes it can be very personal. You've had a church leader who lets you down, who disappoints you. You had a falling out within your small group, within your religious community. Or it can sometimes be big. It's like these big questions of God and suffering and science and doubt. And you're looking around the church and you're like, man, I just don't really believe in this anymore. You find yourself hugely disillusioned. Now, between these two categories, as tough as they are, uh, whether they're you know, here within our community or they're out there, your friends, people you talk to about Christianity. The good news with both of these categories, as I've talked to these people, is that for as discouraged or disillusioned as they tend to be, most people in these circles still do want it, you know? They, they still want God. They have this hunger for God. There's still this longing within them, like, if only the church could figure itself out. If only I could actually find an authentic community. If only I could be uh, told, like, what I'm supposed to be doing with my faith in a healthy, sustainable way, then, man, I, I, there's something here. 
The hardest category, I think, as difficult as both of those two can be, is this third category, which I would just suggest to you may be the majority of people that I encounter here in the city, and that is the category of those who are disinterested. This is such a real struggle. Uh, Jenna and I, my wife who's here, uh, Jenna's working out in the marketplace. She and I are talking all the time about people we're meeting, interacting with in the city. We've just been back a year now. And as we're meeting and dis uh, interacting with people, inevitably a question comes up like, what do I do for a living? What does your husband do for a living? It's always awkward. Uh, you never know where the conversation is going to go. And yet, the surprising thing to both of us is not that people say, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, that's terrible. The church is a terrible thing. It's not even that they say, oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, I, I mean, I would like to be a good Christian, or I'd like to figure more of that out. Like, it'd be nice if you could tell me a few steps that I could take to, to do more in my life. Instead, the most consistent reaction is people who go, oh, that's nice for you, right? Like, yeah, good for you. Cool, cool. So anyways, uh, the Cubs, you know, how are the Cubs doing, right? And this is sort of the challenge in a secular culture, in a pluralistic culture, in a culture, as we've been talking about, that's kind of removed God to the sidelines um, and really has a you-be-you, you-do-you approach to life. It's really challenging to actually get people to engage why they would need or want faith as this energizing, driving force in their life. Yet, let me offer you this encouragement before we move on. I'm going to pivot us from here to give us some more practical ways forward. Uh, I will say if you feel disinterested, which is okay, or especially if you're working with or living with or are near neighboring someone who is disinterested, uh, the one encouragement I would give you with these people is that as difficult and challenging as it is to get their attention, there is something to be said about the disruptions of life. And I would especially say, as, as sad as this is, uh, suffering and death especially, tend to rattle disinterested people and open up a window, and sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long, a window of interest where they begin to say, is there something I may be missing in my life that God could answer if I were to go looking for it? And so if those are people you know, I just want to encourage you, it may be years before that person encounters the full obstacle of suffering, and yet it is amazing, as I've walked with these friends, that people who I've said, you know, they're like so, they're, they're, they're so happy. They're just doing their own thing. They don't really need God. They're not really interested in God. It's been amazing to me that whether it's an unexpected loss, whether it's a breakdown of a relationship, divorce can especially do this, uh, whether it's a family member who suddenly dies, all of a sudden there's this window where you realize, as a person close to them, they may be asking questions that you might have resources to answer. So if these are the categories that we're working with, uh, I do want to come back to this image near the end. I hope to give us some, some vision of what the church is meant to be doing in this moment that we find ourselves in. Now to, to, to ponder that sort of vision or direction, I think the very good question to ask is whether the Bible tells us that our mission is to sell the good news of Jesus? Is that actually how the Bible describes what we as the people of God, the church, are meant to be doing in the city? In order to answer that, I think there's a lot of things we could talk about, uh, but to answer this morning for you, I wanted to take you to a uh, sort of underappreciated letter in the New Testament. This is actually the letter written by Peter to the early church that we call First Peter. And I'm going to throw a map up on the screen. 
This is, just to be clear, for those of you, and thank you, by the way, who have come up to me the last two weeks and said, hey, uh, don't tell anybody, but I actually really liked the Bible background stuff you've been doing over the last few weeks. This is for you. Uh, you we're in this together. Thank you uh, for the encouragement. This is a map of what was called uh, Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And you can see it a little bit bigger on the screen. What's interesting and notable, as Peter starts this letter, and this is all I want to draw your attention to, uh, Peter's writing to churches that are pretty spread out. This is a significant region in Rome. Now, to be clear, this is not Rome, nor is it Corinth. In fact, if I could use just a contemporary analogy, this is not New York City, right? New York City, the letter to the Romans, that's a big hitter. Uh, it's also not LA, right? That's the letters to the Corinthians. Like we know, they, they need a lot of work in LA. Uh, they're a little bit crazy. This is arguably, if I may, the Midwest, right? Uh, Peter is writing to the Midwest, a significant region of the United States, and Chicago, Ephesus, like it's, it's a heavy hitter. You want to pay attention to what God is doing in Ephesus. But the reason I draw your attention to this is to note Peter is writing to urban Christians sitting in a contested culture. In fact, the one striking similarity between Roman culture in the early church and 21st century American culture today is that pluralism was the name of the game. What I mean by that is that in Roman society, there were many different gods, all kinds of different temples, and the rule was you were allowed to worship any god you wanted as long as you didn't insult or put down the other gods that other people were also trying to worship. So in Roman society, it was consistently maintained all gods were permissible just as long as you don't claim that your god is the only one. Now, unfortunately, there was one religion at the time, only one religion in the Roman Empire that sort of broke and resisted this mandate, and it was Judaism, right? Judaism actually had a specific decree from the Roman Empire that they were allowed to practice what they believed as long as they kept it to themselves. And so that's why all these small pockets would form in different Roman cities, and it was often why Jewish people were highly resented in the Roman Empire. Now, into this moment, into the scene, not only does the church take up what Judaism was known for being, uh, was known to be negatively portrayed for in Roman society, but Christianity was then going to all of a sudden extend it out by pushing against this restriction. Say, actually, not only do we believe this one God is the only God, we want to reveal this one God to you as well. So in Peter's day, what happened was there was growing tension between Christians who were trying to figure out how to live this out publicly in a city that did not want to hear it and that, if we're being honest, really didn't care <laughs> what Christians were doing or saying or believing in their midst. And so Peter is going to give a whole letter. If you want to take some time uh, this summer, if this talk resonates with you, would encourage you, go back to Peter and read through First Peter because it's fascinating advice that Peter is going to walk out for urban Christians on how to live and navigate the tensions of this pluralistic culture that they have found themselves in. Yet here's the one verse I want to draw your attention to. This is coming in 1 Peter 2. This is verse 12. It's only one verse. I promise I'm not going anywhere else. Then this one verse. This is what Peter is going to say to the churches that he's talking to in Asia Minor. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives. 
Now, this is really interesting to me uh, because Peter anticipates, anticipates not that the early church is going to convince the pagans that what they believe is right. Rather, Peter assumes the pagans are never going to understand what the Christians are really going after in their faith communities. Are you catching that in the middle? The pagans are going to keep accusing you of doing wrong. They're going to keep pointing out to you your flaws. They're going to keep highlighting over and over again, you are crazy to believe this. You are crazy to say the Son of God rose from the dead. You are crazy to believe that there was one Savior located within a Jewish people in a tiny pocket of an under-resourced, under-privileged corner of society whose death now means that all of the world is being saved. This is ridiculous. And yet, what Peter really pushes their attention to is the possibility that they may do two things. And I'm going to go to the next slide to highlight to you the, the refrain that's consistent here. Live such good lives that they may see your good deeds. Now, I always thought growing up when I first encountered this verse that there was maybe some like, religiosity tones to this goodness. So good lives and good deeds are just religious deeds, you know. So like do church things and that's going to impress people. I don't know if that's working for any of you, uh, but it certainly hasn't worked for me. No one's really impressed as much as I could be sleeping in that I got up for a 1030 service. No one's really that impressed uh, that I go to church sometimes, especially since it's my job. Now, those of you, some of you here, it's far more impressive. I do want to praise you for that. Uh, but if you see with this word good, uh, in the Greek, it's actually far more dynamic, I think, than the sort of flat reading that good may sound uh, in our ears. Instead, definition for good, kolos, is actually an artisanal term. It was a term used by artists, and it was what they would use to describe beautiful things. So good things were things that were beautiful, handsome, excellent, eminent, choice, surpassing, precious, useful, suitable, commendable, admirable. In fact, uh, some scholars recently have been arguing that perhaps better than good would actually be the word beautiful. And if you go back then uh, to the verse, what you would hear Paul saying, or sorry, what you hear Peter saying, is live such beautiful lives among the pagans that they may see your beautiful deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. I think this helps to kind of draw some of the pressure away from our words, from our arguments, from our sort of like attacks or defenses of Christianity that, you know, we've got to really get into it to convince people, to sell to people. No, I think Peter has a sense that in this contested cultural climate, words are going to be pretty cheap in this moment. But what people will pay attention to is if they start to see beautiful lives doing beautiful deeds. And when I say beautiful, what I want to be clear is I'm not just talking about the veneer of beauty, because we've all been on Instagram or Facebook. We know what it's like to see the angle or the image where light is shining and someone is over at the bean, and you think to yourself, wow, living in Chicago for them must just be so glorious. Like, there's no struggle. There's nothing going wrong. Instead, one of my favorite accounts, I'm sure many of you have seen this, uh, on Instagram is Influencers in the Wild. Have any of you seen that? Where it, it always gives you the angle of someone observing what it takes to capture the influencer shot. 
and normally they look ridiculous. Like, it's just so satisfying to see someone with a camera lying on the ground as the other person is, like, scooping out their hair endlessly or, like, double-checking their jacket. It's not a beautiful life. Uh, but what you do know is when you find somebody who's actually beautiful, uh, who's living beautifully in your presence, you have these people in your workplace. Who you, normally we do use words like good. Man, so-and-so, he is a good person, isn't he? Uh, you notice it in your building. Someone picks up, like, after the mess, their dog. You're like, man, they must be a, a good person. Like, something beautiful is going on in them. And so if that's true, I, I want to give you just three practical practices, uh, things that are really simple, really concrete, that you can actually do in your lives. And to be clear, I'm sure you're tracking with me, these are not selling points for Christianity. Instead, there's something else that I'm going to get to at the end. So let's start with three beautiful practices. Let me offer you the first one. What would it look like for you to offer beautiful hospitality in the city? Beautiful hospitality. Uh, if you think about meals, uh, what happens around a table, if you've ever sat down with friends at a meal, meals are the most powerful and beautiful way to connect with others. Meals are where the magic occurs. It's not actually when you're out doing fun things. The fun things are great. It's not when you're playing games. Uh, the board games can be fun. Uh, games out in the city are great. It's not when you're drinking, uh, when it's like dancing and trying, and you're like trying to figure it all out, and you're not really together. No, beautiful moments happen when you are around a table. And yet, if you reflect on hospitality with me, one of the things that happens in the city is that we outsource hospitality regularly. And I have no judgment on this, but what we're doing when we pay for a meal is that we're, we are basically saying, I really want to eat something nice, but I don't have the time, energy, or skills required to make food nice enough for me to want to eat right now. So I'm gonna pay for you to create a good meal for me, whether it's as simple as uh, Chick-fil-A, Chipotle, or it's some really trendy spot in the West Loop. What we're doing is trying to find a beautiful moment of hospitality. Now the question is this, it, what would it look like if you were to actually create a moment of beautiful hospitality for someone else in your life? Um, these steps don't have to be extravagant, they don't have to be expensive, but you've probably noticed, like if someone's coming over for dinner and you choose to cook everything, like you put some thought into the recipe, and then maybe you go and, again, it doesn't have to be like a bouquet of roses. Instead, it could be as simple as like a flower, a candle that you set out. Uh, sometimes it can be as simple as putting on a good playlist of music. Or like one of the best moments is when you go over to a friend's house and they say, hey, do you want to drink this nice bottle of wine with us? Like we were thinking of you and we just wanted, we wanted to have a really nice night together. It's beautiful hospitality. Yet, noticeably, this hospitality does often require something of us, doesn't it? Like, it's work to create beauty within the limited spaces we have. Most of us are living in small, cramped quarters. Uh, we have tiny tables. We feel somewhat embarrassed because our apartments are messy all the time, just speaking for myself here. Uh, and so it's hard. It, it actually is really hard to do the work required to create a moment of beautiful hospitality. Yet, I begin to wonder for you, if you were to think about people both in your life here at this church and people who are in your workplaces, if you were to ask someone, hey, would you like to come over for a meal and I'm going to cook for you? Imagine how that person would feel. Because, I mean, imagine how you would feel 
if someone made that simple invitation to you. Um, one of the most beautiful moments in my wife and I's uh, just experience of hospitality, we love cooking when we can. We've really been off our game since having kids. Uh, it is a struggle. I feel you in the challenges of beautiful hospitality. Uh, but we had this couple who invited us up to Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, they were parents of uh, their son, was 20-something, was working with us. They said, hey, we know ministry's hard. You should come up sometime on a Friday. Just stay with us through Saturday. You can walk the lake. Uh, we'll cook you a nice meal. And we, thinking like, you know, when a person offers that, great. Uh, if it's pizza, that's fine, you know, but if it's something better, perfect. Let's do this. Sounds nice to get away. Uh, we go up to Traverse City, and there as we enter their home, they take us down to their guest room, and they have this basket of snacks, uh, treats from Traverse City, uh, cherries, if I recall, any of you know, right? There's something famous in Traverse City with cherries. Um, there's a snack basket waiting for us. The towels are laid out. They welcome us upstairs, and then they begin to explain to us, you know, every Friday night we practice a Sabbath, uh, much like the Jewish community would, where around sunset, we're going to turn off our lights, we're just going to have candles, and uh, we found that in order to actually slow down, we have to, we have to bake the bread ourselves, so we're going to have some fresh-baked bread, uh, and we, we really love to just cook something, it's not extravagant, but uh, something simple with vegetables and a meat, and as we are moving through this motion, they take a moment just before the meal where they slow down to pray this blessing over the week. And they're like, God, we thank you for what you've been doing in our lives this last week. We take a moment to notice now, even this day, the gift of being together. Uh, and now, Lord, bless this meal, that it might be a night of, of meaning and hope and love. Amen. As Jen and I are sitting through this meal, we're like, is something holy happening right now? Like, why do we feel so cared for and loved? Uh, because... They went out of their way to create beauty in their hospitality. I wonder for you if, you, if you're willing to get practical with me, if there might be a night a week, this is what Jen and I have talked about, we've experimented with at different points, is there one night a week that becomes your night of beautiful hospitality? And again, I realize some of you may have cramped quarters, there may only be one chair <laughs> you can offer to a friend, you may need to go out, that's okay. Uh, but what would it take for you to offer beautiful hospitality? Here's another one beautiful generosity. Beautiful generosity. Not just our hospitality, but small, simple, practical ways that you can beautifully extend generosity to others. Here's just a quick story around this. Uh, Jenna, my wife, is working in the marketplace, and she loves, just in case you want to love Jenna, she loves Coca-Cola. Not the diet stuff, not the zero stuff, the full sugared original stuff. So if you want to bless Jenna, get her a full-blown Coca-Cola. Uh, and so for her, at her office, like special treat, she needs to pick me up in the day. She'll go out and she'll buy a Coke, stick it in the fridge, and save it for that special moment. Well, she leaves one over a weekend and comes back on Monday, goes into the fridge, and it looks like it's moved, which is kind of strange. She takes it, goes to her desk, and all of a sudden, this guy she works with walks up and says, hey, does anyone see my Coke? I feel like somebody took my Coke. And Jenna immediately is like, this is the worst case scenario, you know, like, atomic shame and uh, embarrassment. She's like, I'm so sorry. I had a Coke in the fridge. I don't know what happened. This must be yours. And the guy goes, oh, I think I drank your Coke last weekend, actually. Uh, I think on Friday, I may have had your Coke. Immediately, they start going back and forth. Oh, okay, that's okay. Well, here, you can have it. No, 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 you have it. I mean, I drank yours. Oh, okay, we're both really embarrassed. Let's hope this moment never happens again. They part ways. <laughs> well, Jenna goes out, and she, she thinks to herself, you know, like, there's a really easy solve for this. I'm going to get another Coke, and I'm just going to buy one for myself as well, and I'm going to leave it for him with a note. So she takes it over to his desk and says, hey, I went out to grab a Coke, was thinking of you, and thought you may enjoy this. Uh, 
inevitably, right? If that happened to you in your workplace, in the day, what do you do? He comes over and he's like, thank you. This was the best thing ever. Like my day is so much better. This is awesome. Thank you so much. The next day, inevitably, he comes in with a 12 pack of Coke, right? <laughs> he puts it in the fridge. He says, this is for me and you. Like we're, we're in this together. This is ours. Like you drink as many of this as you want. My point is that generosity done simply but beautifully can have this reverberating impact out and can actually create friendship that never would have existed before. It really is simple and profound. Uh, one other example of this, like you can be beautifully generous with text messages, right? That you think of a friend and you're like, hey, they said something to me that I just wanted to follow up on. Hey, I was thinking about your mom. Hey, I know this has been a tough week at work. Hey, how are things going? A text message can be beautifully generous. Uh, your time can be beautifully generous where you just offer, hey, do you want to go for a walk together? Do you want to get a coffee? Like, would you like to spend some time? I would love to be present to you with my time. Or uh, one of our small groups here has been doing this thing where they realize they really want to help the homeless community. They feel so overwhelmed in the city. Every time they meet a homeless person, they have no idea what to do. And so they thought, how can we practically do something? And they put together these packs uh, that have granola bars, water bottles. And their thought was, what if we just stick it in our cars and our bags? And anytime we see a homeless person, we're going to just do a little bit of work set these packs up, but it's something that we can just be beautifully generous with as we are living our lives here in the city. It's amazing how beautiful generosity can capture the attention of a disinterested, distracted, discouraged, disillusioned world in a way that little else can. And that leads us finally to the thought that we can, if we are practicing hospitality and generosity, we can actually extend a beautiful witness. Uh, witness, the word is interesting to ponder for just a second. A witness is not somebody who inherently is pointing to themselves, but is pointing to something else. Uh, they're often brought in to offer testimony, to describe, hey, why are you doing what you're doing? Or, hey, what did you see and encounter that has changed your perspective on why uh, this event has unfolded? I think if, when it comes to beautiful witness, one of our great challenges is that in this drive to sell, we think we have to convince people to become Christians. Instead, uh, this pastor, scholar, evangelist named Randy Newman, I thought, brought out a really helpful point. He studied the interactions of Jesus with all kinds of people. He said, very simply, if you look at Jesus's life, Jesus never tries to convince, rarely tries to argue, uh, is not trying to defend the validity of his claims. Instead, Jesus does two things. He asks questions, and then he tells stories, right? It really almost is as simple as that for Jesus. As somebody comes to him with something, Jesus is going to say, hey, tell me more about that. Uh, what do you think? W what do you see, God? What do you believe about faith? Uh, what have you experienced with the church? Or Jesus will offer stories. Hey, can I tell you about the time uh, there was a man working a field? Can I tell you about this time there was a man who was abandoned on the road and a, few a couple people passed by? What I love about this approach is that it takes the pressure off of us have to convince somebody to believe something. Instead, gives us permission to explore what kind of questions could you begin asking to those people around you in your lives that could open up space for you to hear them in new ways and maybe for them to even listen to you. And then secondly, what kind of stories do you have that are worth telling? I mentioned people inevitably ask me what I do. Uh, I find getting my hair cut is always this like high-octane missional moment because inevitably I'm asked, what am I doing in the city? And then I tell them I'm a pastor. And there's this moment where like 
normally they want to drop the conversation. <laughs> That's been my experience. Most of the time things fall silent. Yeah, I found the simplest, simplest two steps I can take are first to say, what kind of faith background have you had? Have you ever had any experience with the church? Always leads to a very fascinating response. Uh, the other thing I can do is say, yeah, you know, some of the cool things that uh, I get to do as a part of this community are, and then I'll just tell some stories. Like, yeah, we've been getting together here. We're going to a park soon. You know, like, it's fun that we get to celebrate Easter, Christmas together. It's been, it's been really great to have a group of friends that I can actually live in the city with. Uh, as we go to this graph, one more time, I'll close with this. As you look at these different categories of discouraged, disillusioned, disinterested, you begin to see the possibility of what Peter's talking about. That a beautiful life, you committing to intentionally practicing beauty through simple steps like your hospitality, your generosity, and your storytelling and questioning could actually connect with the discouraged. In fact, my hunch is there are a number of people here in this community, people who normally show up for the first time, that the main thing they need, the best gift we can offer them is just to say, hey, do you want to come grab a meal with me sometime? Uh, for the disillusioned, especially that generosity piece, it is always striking that you think the church is one way, and then you encounter a follower of Jesus who turns around and says, hey, can I just generously offer you some of my life? Or finally, for the disinterested, I do wonder if you begin training yourself to ask questions, and you have a few stories prepared, I wonder what moments you will discover where that person has encountered suffering has been disrupted in their life and actually has far more interest if someone were to just ask them a question. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we close our time. Jesus, we know that it is not an easy moment to follow you in the city. We know that there is deep discouragement, deep disillusionment, deep disinterest. And yet, God, we pray that we would begin to be a community, that we would, together as the church, offer beautiful lives that do beautiful deeds to the point that if one of us alone were to offer some beautiful hospitality, another one of us might offer some generosity, then another begins to share a story, God, that this light would begin to grow right here out of Lincoln Hall to the point that even this small band who follow you together would begin to shine a light here in Lincoln Park that would begin to push back the darkness, not only in our neighborhood, but across the whole city. God, we boldly pray that you would help us to be this kind of people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.